This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Today is February the 10th. My name is John Dunn, and here are some words I never thought I would say. This is the 100th episode of the Best Friends Podcast. Can you believe it? Our guest this week is the CEO of Best Friends, Julie Castle. She and I had a great chat about pay, not mine specifically. You see, Best Friends recently announced that our animal caregiving staff, those at the sanctuary in Utah and at our life-saving centers around the country, will be receiving a pay increase, and it's not an insignificant one. Why? Well, you'll find out in about a minute. Very quickly, it's the 100th episode, so we have to say thank you to you for listening and subscribing and sharing this podcast. We do this because we believed a podcast could help us achieve our goal of delivering information and inspiration that can help you be successful in your life-saving efforts. And of course, we thought it might be entertaining. The podcast is one of many things we offer through the Best Friends Network. The website, network.bestfriends.org. Again, network.bestfriends.org. We've got town halls, playbooks, editorials, program spotlights, a vlog. So if you're finding the podcast to be helpful, make sure you check out the rest of it. Network.bestfriends.org, or you can find a link in the show notes area on your podcast player. Again, thank you. And if you're wondering what gift you give to a podcaster when they hit 100 episodes, open your social media apps right now. Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, whatever you're into, tell your friends about the podcast. And with any luck, before you know it, we'll be talking about episode 200. But we can't get to 200 without 100. So here we go. Without further ado, here is episode 100. And my guest, the CEO of Best Friends Animal Society, Julie Castle. Hi, Julie. How are you? Thanks for coming. Yeah, absolutely, John. Of course. Well, we're at episode 100. The tradition continues now of having you back every 50 or so episodes, like once a year. Uh, But it's been a while since you and I've talked. So how are you? How was your holiday? So I, my holiday was great. It's always good to take a little break and gain perspective. And I think everyone needs to do that every once in a while and you know a week here and there it just isn't enough I think for the human brain and the human body to really recharge so you know I like to take a chunk of time so that I can really get into whatever I'm doing if I'm on vacation like if I'm actually going somewhere or if I'm doing more of a staycation and doing some sort of renovation project which I like to get my hands on Often, I'm sort of addicted to renovating old dumpy hovels. So, you know, it's it, that's what I did mostly on my break, which was good. It is good. I mean, well, as good as doing this work is, and it is great doing this work, it's also pretty great to not do it. It, really, it is. I mean, I think I, anybody's career, right? Like you, you need a, you need a mental and physical break from it. Because I think you just don't perform at your best when you are constantly go, 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 go. And I think it took me a long time to figure that out. A really way too long into my career to figure out that that was just not a healthy place to be. Yeah, I was reminded recently, uh, you know, that four day work week approach, you know, that thing Uh, lined up looking it up. Turns out it's not that great, depending on who you ask. But I do think it's true that for a lot of us, if you're refreshed and engaged 
you get more done. It's just that simple, but you're only refreshed and engaged when you've been able to step away. But of course, like everything that you and I always talk about, it's easier said than done. Yeah. And then I think that like, look, I'm really serious about this um, as CEO of this organization and want to demonstrate it to the staff because I think that you, there's a lot of, um, I think earlier in my career, there was a lot of talk of, oh yeah, take your time off, take your PTO and don't check in, don't email, but yet I would not do that. And so I think you're an example, you set that example. And and now I've become quite uh, draconian about it because I feel like, you know, there there's science behind this. This isn't just somebody's wackadoodle theory that if you don't mentally take a break and physically and emotionally take a break, you're just not going to be able to be of your best use to the job that you have. And the animals is ultimately what this is all about. And so it, that is a really, that's been a big learning for me over the years, for sure. Well, I think it's fair to say that you do have a passion for those things, Julie, you know, in the time that you've been CEO of best friends last four years or so, you've put a big focus on trying to get best friends to be the best place, not just for animals, but also for people, the staff, you know, benefits and and pay. And that's what I want to talk about today, if you're okay with that, because recently the staff of Best Friends, we all got an email from you about changes to the pay structure specifically for the animal caregivers at Best Friends. I don't want to just talk about this. I want to like shout this from the rooftops. I feel like it's that important. I think that we've known each other a long time and I think we've gone through, we've had a lot of experiences together in this organization. And I feel like early on for me, you know, I started here in my early twenties, which is crazy and literally lived in the back of a van and showered at the local gym. I showed up with 20 bucks in my pocket and got paid. My first paycheck was 183 bucks and I got paid before the founders got paid. And so it was one of those deals where, you know, it was really true. I felt like I was, it was all in service, right? You're doing this because you're really passionate about it and you want to do it. And the money didn't matter, you know, getting paid a living wage didn't matter. That's sort of that headspace that I was in. And I feel like I kind of carried this attitude with me for years that, hey, I I lived through this, I went through this, it's a rite of passage. If you start here in the organization and you're working in animal care, then you're not gonna get paid a decent wage. It's just part of the the gig, like that is your rite of passage. And I think I, I had a huge change of heart around this and it started happening probably in about 20, it, it was chipping away through the the 2010s, right? And I think I hit probably 2017 and went uh, ended up managing uh, in the very beginning our our response to Harvey. And there it wasn't what I actually wanted to do. It just sort of happened that way because of a lot of different events. And 
So I spent a lot of time on the ground there and just spent a lot of time with our, our caregiving staff, which I'd done often, but I had, I had an opportunity to actually work shoulder to shoulder with them. And that kind of started this ball rolling for me, thinking about the importance of that job, that people who, who are taking care of the animals, it, it was like this light bulb moment, like this is our highest charge. Our highest charge is that we take care of animals and animals are our priority. And if we as an organization or a movement are paying these folks less than anybody else in the organization, there is something really wrong with our priorities, really wrong. And so as we were going through our, our budgeting for this year, and we had started in on a compensation reboot, a compensation study for levels all across the organization. And when I, when I started to see where those were landing, I said, the one I am most interested in right now is our animal caregivers at our sanctuary and our life-saving centers. That one I really want to get my hands dirty on. So I rolled up my sleeves with the staff that were performing the compensation review. And, and I was curious to see where they would come in with what their recommendation was. And it was generous. But I thought, you know what? <laughs> we need to be really generous. Really generous because the animals in our care, this is what we do. It's not the only thing we do, but we are an animal welfare organization. And the folks who are, are charged with taking care of those sentient beings are very important. And so we, we sat down and talked through this. And I just said, look, I feel like our entry level wage needs to be $50,000. Well, Julie, when you say 50K, I just want to make sure everyone knows that you're using that as sort of a catch-all number, if you will. It's not the exact amount. It's not a flat rate for all. It's going to be lower at the entry level uh, and then higher than that at the top end, depending on location, You know, whether you're the sanctuary in Utah or LA or New York. So, uh, Oh, and plus benefits. So the sanctuary, for example, I do know caregivers will hit that number once they reach a year of employment. Uh, you've got a blog coming out in the next few days. It's going to go into more detail. So we'll make sure we have that linked on uh, bestfriends.org slash podcast. Yeah, I, I think it. I think the way the world's headed, inflation, the economy, you've got companies that are, you know, really looking at, at wages. You've got communities and cities having the starting wage be $15 an hour, which in my opinion is a long time coming. And at the end of the day, I said to myself, you know, if you have the means to do this, any company in the world, if you have the means to pay your employees well, you should do it. Because if you don't have well-paid employees, you don't have a company. Your, your employees, your people, your folks, your humans are what makes your organization work. It is the most important thing that you can take care of. And if you take care of that, everything else becomes way easier, way, way, way easier. And that took me a, a long time to get to that point, just mentally and philosophically, I think, because you're, 
you're trained, you're, you, you grow up in this is how it's always been. This is how it always should be. And I think we all are fall victim to that in some way or another. And I certainly was part of that. And I think there was part of, part of me had a bit of a chip on my shoulder. Like, look, I put in my time and you should too. And it was totally the wrong attitude. And so I, I will wholeheartedly admit that, recognize how short-sighted and immature that was. And just to think about this more holistically and taking care of a person and thinking about it in those terms and, and knowing that your staff doesn't have to worry about paying bills is a big deal. And hearing stories from people all across the organization saying things like, oh, now I don't have to live with a roommate. And I say, how old are you? And they're in their mid thirties early and living with a roommate. And now I can buy a house. Now I can dot, dot, dot. And it just makes me really happy. Caring for animals is a real skill and it is very, very hard work, which I'm not sure how many people realize that. But as you say, you know, it is seen as entry level, but there are so many aspects of those jobs that are not at all entry level, working with the public, knowing how to care for animals and work with the public and be good at both of those things. I mean, that's not something anyone can do and just be successful. So anyone who wants to do it and is good at it, why can't that be the career? You know, not that there shouldn't be opportunities to move up, but we've denigrated that job so much, I think, you know, and what it takes. I mean, they're all real skills as valid as knowing how to write fundraising appeals or, I mean, I don't know, host a podcast, I guess. I, I totally agree. And I think there are a few things when we were going through this that, that I had, that I took real issue with. The fact that we just sort of had gotten into this routine of calling people frontline staff that we're caring for animals. No, no more. That goes out the window. We're not going to use that term anymore. This is the heart of our mission staff. Let's use that uh, or figure out something akin to that. To me, that was a really important deal in all of this. And the other thing is thinking about the amount of skill and energy it takes to go from expressing an incontinent cat one minute and then dealing with a very high maintenance volunteer the next minute. And you all know what I'm talking about. And then you have a donor that comes in and you have to put on your happy face, even though you could have had a totally shit day. Like there are a lot of components to this. And I, I think about this, about our entire movement, somebody who's working in a shelter, these young women who came out from Michigan with that dog, Bella, and that story was really incredibly heart-wrenching. And we connected with the shelter. They drove this dog all the way across the country. They arrived at Dogtown and I met them at Dogtown. And this dog had been left chained up in the backyard. There was a domestic dispute. One at the partner left a, a bag of dog food just out of reach of this dog to punish her partner. And one of these young women found the dog. She got a phone call. Animal control officer couldn't have been more than 25 years old. And um, Bella had chewed her leg off. And so she immediately called the vet, got the dog to the vet, this sweet pit bull dog. And let the dog recover, 
hooked up with us. We took Bella. And later I, I went to dinner with them that evening. And it was a fascinating conversation to understand what they were facing. I asked them, you know, how long have you been at your shelter? How big is your community, first of all? 185,000 people, decent sized community, not huge. You know, how long have you been there? Five years. What were you getting paid when you started? $8 an hour. Do you have a staffing shortage? Yes, we do, because we can't afford to pay people as much as the local Taco Bell. And it's the same story that I'm hearing over and over again. And I think until we as an industry, as a field, as a movement, recognize that we are going to be in a perpetual staffing shortage and shelter crisis, and this is never going to be a career for people if we don't start really paying our employees, particularly caregivers, what they're worth. And I just feel like it is such an important issue for our entire movement, like one that I'm super passionate about. And you just think about really like, <clears throat> sorry, how hard these guys work. And it's, um, <clears throat> it is a humbling experience and it's why you get so many, or at least best friends get so many people who come to visit the sanctuary or they volunteer at one of our life-saving centers and they absolutely fall in love with these caregivers because they see them doing the work that's at the heart of our mission. And they see the love and the care that they have for these animals to the point where they will sacrifice themselves personally for that job. And I'm not saying that's healthy or right. I'm just saying this is the DNA of the people that we're attracting. And in some ways, you think about these folks who are going to do this, no matter the personal sacrifice. And so I'm saying to other leadership across the nation, we need to help these folks have a livable wage beyond a livable wage. Like, forget about that. Like, let's reward them in the same way that they are rewarding the animals in their care. I know the shelter director in Saginaw has been fighting hard to change that. She's been in that role for two years and uh, I reached out to her to ask and she said she's been able to get two raises through to this point and is pushing for more. So that's great. But yeah, I mean, I think once you realign your brain around the fact that these jobs are skilled roles like any other, arguably even more so than others, I think the hope is that people will hear this and really think about what they're currently paying their folks and whether or not it is where it should be. But it's all easy to say, isn't it? You know, I don't know any organization, municipal government, that has more money than they know what to do with. Budgeting requires hard decisions because if we're going to take money from this pot to do this, then we won't have the budget to pay for that. And lest anyone think Best Friends is in some sort of unique position with endless cash, Yes, Best Friends is a big organization, but our budget is budgeted just like everybody else's. So you had to make decisions. The rest of the leadership team, you had to say, okay, this is important. So let's figure out how to do it. Can you talk about the process to make it work? You know, I imagine there were things that you really didn't want to cut, but this is not just like waving a wand. Oh, it wasn't like this, you know, glorious moment where everyone was like, oh, and let's make this happen and wave our wand. It was a lot of back and forth. 
And it was while I was out relating to Gregory's open heart surgery that we were going back and forth on this. And it was, that was unfortunate timing, but it was something that was a huge priority to me that we all, number one, were aligned on this because alignment from your leadership team is critical, especially when you're rolling something out this big. And my, the first reaction to this was, we don't have the budget. We don't have enough money. This is going to create problems in the future. And I said, listen, this represents X percentage of our entire budget. I know that we have the leadership team that can take that percentage and make cuts in their area and do it and do it in a very thoughtful way and do it in a way that isn't going to damage our overall programming. But that is looking at things from a, a mentality of scarcity to say, we don't have the budget and this is going to harm us in the future. This is one of those acts of generosity and doing the right thing that will come back and pay you triple fold. I promise you. And that isn't pie in the sky. That isn't sort of wishing on a star. The positive ripple effect that these kind of moves have that you don't even account for are going to be ridiculous. To me, that is the, that's the angle and the vision that I want people to really connect with. And I'll tell you, the minute we did this, we had donors who are regulars at our life-saving centers and our sanctuary. All of them were writing checks, all of them. I did not do this. The senior leadership did team did not do this because of that end of story, full stop. That has nothing to do with it. I'm saying that people recognize when you do the right thing and they reward it. And I feel like that is a, that's where you get into this sort of blinders on. And look, I heard a lot of this, that there are all these organizations out there that, you know, may not have the means and, and, how, how do we message this throughout the movement? And listen, I'll just say this. There are plenty of organizations that have the means to rethink how they are thinking about their animal care staff, number one. Number two, if there are young, underfunded organizations that maybe don't have the means, you can think about this in creating a path toward getting to this point you can start prioritizing your employees in a different way. It isn't always about money. There are a lot of things that you can do to, as a leader of an organization, to demonstrate that your employees are your greatest asset. And putting them first, you're always going to win. I see the struggle with organizations that may not have the resources. There was a time that I lived through here where we didn't have the resources. And now we do, and I'm glad we can do this. But I do know that back in the day, there were things best friends could have done to pr prioritize our employees. And, and we, weren't, we weren't mature enough yet, I don't think, to be thinking that way. So there's nothing that, but good that comes out of something like this. I think about how many people over the years I have known, many of whom work for best friends at the sanctuary, others at our life-saving centers around the country, good people, Julie, really good people 
who we lost because they just couldn't make it work financially. Tons. I think we've lost tons of good people due to that fact. And I think we have people that have stuck it out, like Mike Bazooka, who, you know, when he heard the news, he literally like fell on the table in tears. And I think a lot of our employees had that reaction. And, you know, hearing the stories about people saying, now I have a shot at buying a home. Like, that's pretty cool to hear that. But you also think about, and I have this theory about nonprofits and animal welfare that relates to diversity. And I think that, you know, it's not based in any study or fact or anything. It's just me thinking about sort of our movement and why isn't our movement more diverse and why aren't other nonprofit organizations more diverse? And I think a big part of it, honestly, is pay. Because when you think about it, a lot of folks who who we're working with can kind of afford to take a lower paying position because they have a safety net, whether it's their family or their spouse or whatever. But people who are in communities that are, that maybe don't have that kind of safety net or are more disadvantaged, they can't afford to take these kind of jobs. And I think there is a something there. I think there's a theory there that we really need to pursue because it's my belief that if we paid more across the board, particularly in these positions where people are caring for animals, I think we're going to see more diversity. We're going to attract more diversity. I really believe that because suddenly we're going to be competitive with all of those companies out there in their communities that are McDonald's, sadly, but true. That excites me. That That is a game changer. Well, I wholeheartedly agree. And I just hope that we can get to a point where every single person working in animal welfare, animal sheltering, caregiver, animal control officer, office staff, it doesn't matter. Everyone is earning a living that allows them to live, right? Not just survive. And for this critical side of the work that we do, the animal caregiving work, hopefully people will start to see these jobs as good careers because we need good people in these jobs and they just haven't been looked at in that way as a career. No, they haven't. I mean, that is, that's sort of my end game is that this is a career. This can be a career. How many times have you heard a volunteer or somebody that you went to school with say, oh, I wish I could work with animals, but I can't afford to. And you think about the what you just described with some of those communities. There are tons and tons of people probably with that same notion. I want to work with animals. I love animals. I can't afford to. And so I feel like it's not just, it, it's sweeping change that needs to happen. And I think it takes that really looking at um, getting out of this poverty mentality of we can't afford to. Are we sure we can't afford to? Because let's really look at where, where our priorities are and where we're putting our resources and think about the number one most important resource that we have is, is our employee base.
that is the start of a strong culture. And if you don't have a strong culture, um, you're building things on top of a house of cards and you're just going to keep going through um, drama after drama after thing and struggle your way through um, <laughs> the, the world that we currently know as animal welfare. And so um, I, I'm really passionate about this. I think it's something that is, um, I think it's something that, that can really change our industry in a very, very positive way. Again, if your organization isn't in the position of being able to make it happen today, it doesn't mean don't pursue it, right? Strategic planning, make sure you're including this conversation and create a plan that whether it's the next year, three, five, whatever it is, that that plan involves increasing pay, even incrementally, but at least that there's an awareness of it and a commitment to say that we want to do this differently. I, I hope that is true, truly, truly, truly my hope. I think it's a measure of self-worth that we really need to think about. And it's a, it's a devaluation of the work that we do and therefore the animals and therefore the, the entire cause. And it should not be that way. It is hard work on every level. We're dealing with live, living, sentient beings. There is no greater value than that. And we should think about compensating the people in our care uh, at the highest level that we can. You don't get to 100 episodes without a lot of help, and that help comes from Tawny Hammond, Bethany Hines, Kayla Sebo, Whitney Blyton, and Mark Peralta. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.